Hello, all you reinventors out there. It's Leslie Jane Seymour, and we are going to talk about the illusion of control. That is one of those things that can hold you back from reinvention. Um, and many of us have that illusion of control. In many ways, it's the only thing that gets us out of bed and gets us to walk across the street. Um, is the idea that if we follow the rules and look at the light and see the walk sign that it's okay to walk. Well, the truth is with life, it may not be okay to walk. Things happen still. And we don't always have control, but our little mind makes it one of those needs that we have to have that illusion. And, um, when that illusion gets pierced, it can really send you into a spiral that requires reinvention. And such is the story of the wonderful person we are about to listen to, Layla Tareff, who is now the chief people officer at Allbirds. And she's also bringing out a book called Strong Like Water. And you know, what we call is not just the illusion of control, but the delusion of control. And she had your classic perfect life and was thrown for a loop when her husband accidentally died of a drug overdose. And then various other things happened as well. And um, I think there's a lot here for people who may have been parents to their parents who may be people who think that being busy is the only value in their life, because if they are still for a moment, there's a lot of things that come up that are very uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it's a wonderful story about having to pick up the pieces after that illusion of control is pierced and move on um, because she had a daughter to take care of. And it ends well, um, and there's some wonderful learning here for all of you. So I hope that you will enjoy it. It's a different type of reinvention. It's a reinvention of someone's emotional life, but it takes in everything. So I think for that reason, you will enjoy it. So here we go. I'd like us all to welcome Layla. So Layla, welcome. I'm so excited to have this conversation. This is going to be different. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Leslie. So let's start right in. We're going to do a very different intro to all the people who know who I usually start with, everybody's background and their history, because it's mostly work. We're going to talk about invincibility. And let's talk a little bit about how you had, I think you said 43 years of a life that was invincible and everything seemed to be going as planned and you had the illusion of control. So maybe talk a little mm -hmm. bit about how you got there. Again, we just wanna, we'll be short on that and then we'll talk about what happened after. So give us the, give us the lowdown. 
It's interesting you say the illusion of control because that's absolutely what it was. It, it was a delusion. Uh, you know, I, my my parents are immigrants. We moved here from Lebanon when I was seven. I did very well in school. I went to college. I went to business school. My career had taken off. I was an executive uh, at the time at the internet division of Walmart. And then I went to Pete's Coffee. You know, great companies, great brands. I was married. I had a young daughter. And life was good. I had a circle of friends living in San Francisco. And um, I was very strong and capable and didn't let things get me down. Until my husband one day said, I'm not happy. Uh, And the next thing I knew, he passed away of an accidental drug overdose. And it literally happened in about three months which just goes to show you how completely delusional I was that I didn't even notice. And then, um, and then my father had a stroke uh, in his 60s and, and passed away about 18 months afterwards. And then my mom also had a stroke a couple of years after that and passed away. So in a period of um, four or five years, I suffered three big losses. And it was the first time in my life I just couldn't I, I couldn't just manhandle things, for lack of a better word, and and tuck it away and not have to deal with it. I had to, it just it just brought me down, and I had to grieve in a healthy way. You know, I probably wouldn't have even done it had I not had a young daughter, but I knew that I couldn't help her work through her grief um, unless I felt all my feelings, and so into the valley I went. So talk a little bit about grief and about, well, first of all, I would love to know and people will ask. So when your husband was saying he was unhappy and then that just three months later, something yeah. happened to him, um, what kind of drug was he into? And what did you just, were you just working so hard? You didn't know that, that he was into drugs or was this a new habit or something? Cause he was unhappy. You know, you know he, um, he always drank a lot and I was, he, he was never, um, he was never angry. He was, you know, but he, he could drink more than, well, certainly me and then, and a lot of people, but he was functional. So I never really understood that that was really a problem. And then a year into our marriage, he actually was in a bicycle accident and um, he broke a couple of his vertebrae and um, was put in a back brace and was put on really strong opiate drugs. And this was in 2001, before I think we really knew how strong those drugs were. And he passed away at the end of 2007. I think when I look back now, I realize he never got off of those after his accident. I think it just, um, no one ever asked if he had a history of alcoholism or if his family had dependency issues, they just gave him the drugs. And I think, he just uh, did did them the entire time we were um, in our marriage. So he was very functional. Um, I didn't I didn't really notice it. Um, and uh, in in July he said, "You know, gosh, I'm not sure this is working for me." He moved out in October and he passed away in December. It was it was that fast. I thought just when I started getting my head around the fact that I think we might be getting a divorce. I didn't even tell my parents we were separated until Thanksgiving. And then he died a week later. And was it opioids? Did they come up it with was what a it mix, was? Or was it, it was just a mix, It was a mixture of, of, of a lot of things. It was alcohol and um, pain pills and um, 
antidepressants. It was a mixture of, of a lot of things. Yeah. So how did you respond to that before you got into something happening to your parents? Was that, and you were well, working full time and now, you, now you're yeah. a widow and you're working full time. Yeah, I was, um, I was, uh, well, I, I found him, I didn't expect this to take this turn, but I'll tell you the story. It's, it's, a, it's a hard one. Um, no one had heard from him in about a week or a few days. And, and then it turned, started getting to be a week and I kept on calling and I couldn't reach him. And finally I thought something is wrong. And so I, um, I went to the police station to tell them and, and they said, well, we'll go to his apartment. They knocked on the door he said, nobody answered. I said, yeah, but what if he's inside? What if he's hurt? Um, they said they couldn't go in without a search warrant. So the next day I called the manager and of the apartment complex. And she said that if I sent the police back, that she would open the door. And then they found him. And then nobody would tell me for hours because nobody wanted to tell um, a young mother that her husband just passed. And Finally, they the police station transferred me to the medical examiner's office, and he told me on the phone while I was driving to go to work. Um, because I didn't, you know, I, I it was the morning. I knew the police were going to his apartment. Nothing was wrong. Quote: Nothing was wrong. Right? These are all my suspicions, but there, I had no evidence, so I kept on moving through my day as if everything was okay which just goes to show you how strong my belief was. Everything's just going to be fine. Just put one foot in front of the other. It's going to be okay. And until I actually heard those words while I was driving to go to work, I, I, I was on the bridge and I got to the other side of the bridge. I didn't know what to do. And I called my boss and thank goodness he had more sense than I did. He said, turn around, go back home. I'll meet you there. And, uh, and that's how it all started. And so let's talk about how, how you got through that and, um, um, and then into what happened to your parents. I think at first I was just really numb. Nothing like that had ever happened to me. And um, I, I think I, I really wanted to try to just tuck it away. Um, and the feelings just kept on coming up. I couldn't push them back. And even when I was successful in... <clears throat> pushing them back and explaining them away. I had this little girl that was um, grieving and she would, she would whine for her dad. And it was just, I'm embarrassed to tell you that at first it just made my skin crawl because I didn't know how to comfort her. I didn't know what to do because I had never done it for myself. <clears throat> and so I finally realized like, okay, I have got to deal with this. So I went and I contacted the therapist I had worked with 10 years earlier. <clears throat> and, and we did some very, very deep work for that next year. And um, he made me realize that I really never, uh, I never got over my, um, my story that I was strong and capable, and I would not allow anyone to help me because I needed to feel like I was in control. And so of course, I ended up marrying someone who I needed to take care of. Uh, and, um, and I think in the end, um, losing control, losing him in that way was probably the only thing that was going to show me that I just couldn't control everything. I know that sounds terrible, 
But for me, I was so headstrong. My ironclad will was, no, I got it. I can handle it. I think nothing less than this sort of tragedy would have convinced me that, you know, nothing. Um, and so it was just, uh, it was a year of going within, going deeply and allowing myself to feel and to grieve. I didn't understand it at first. I didn't understand like what you just cry. You just, you're just sad. I, I didn't really understand what the point was because I'd never allowed myself to just feel crummy, let alone grieve because I was always happy, happy. And you're just not looking at it the right way. I was always reframing to the positive. Um, and, and that served me for a long, long time, right? I grew up um, in, in, a, in a home where my mom and dad fought a lot and it's how I stayed away from the feelings that I didn't want to feel. And, but that's what happens in life, right? The, the, the qualities that save you uh, for the first half of your life at some point start to hold you back, right? Because then you start realizing you're living a very, imbalanced life. And for me, I didn't see it because I was successful in my life. Uh, every, you know, all the markers of success were there. And um, what finally did it was suffering these losses for me to go within and say, hold on a minute, am I really happy? What do I really control? Um, and that's where I started this journey. And but you have to go through the valley. And sort of break down um, until you come back out again. And if you don't allow yourself to, to break down, um, then, then there is no healing, there is no transformation. Uh, so it was, it was probably a few years of just allowing myself to feel all the feelings I'd not allowed myself to feel up until that point. So it, was, it wasn't just the grieving for, for my husband and, and then my parents, but it was actually everything else I had not allowed myself to feel the disappointments throughout my life, big and small. And so it was just a clearing because if you don't feel your feelings, they get stuck in your body, right? They, <clears throat> the energy just gets stuck in there. Um, and some people become depressed and anxious. I just, I just moved into overdrive and just was, um, I, I was just a taskmaster. I just got things done. And so it's, it's harder to see that you're all out of balance and out of whack and you're rigid and, and, and unfeeling when um, everything's going well around you, right? And so it, was, it, was, it took me a long time to come to this place. Well, and, and because our society says, I mean, you pick something that, you know, and this is part of our busyness obsession, a lot of people mm -hmm. escape their feelings with busyness because it's yes. convenient. And our, our culture says that's good. So if you're really busy, it doesn't matter if you have feelings or you're dealing with them, you're being productive, right? It's so American. That's right. And it's um, a badge of honor. Look badge at me. Look of honor. I have to do. Look how much that's people right. rely on me. I mean, I'll never forget this. The, 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 the moment, like one big breakthrough when I worked with my therapist, he, we were talking about asking for help and, and having needs. And I said something ridiculous, like, well, you know, I'm very low maintenance. He goes, well, what does that mean, low maintenance? And I, and I was kind of bragging. I said, well, you know, like, I don't have a lot of needs. I, you know, I'm one of these women where I just, you know, I could just go at a moment's notice and, you know, I'm, I'm low maintenance. And he looked me in the eye and he said, uh, so if you act like you have no needs, how do they get met? 
And I just stopped for a second. I, I couldn't say I had no needs, right? That would be ridiculous. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've had this thing all wrong. I know that sounds, to me today, it sounds crazy, but I had constructed this narrative, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where no one, uh, I can't rely on anyone. No one's going to do anything for me. And so I jumped in and took care of everything myself. And people saw, oh, well, she's fine. I don't need to help her, which then reaffirmed <laughs> my belief that no one's going to help me. And so I created a world that supported the narrative that I was in. And that's how self-fulfilling prophecies work, right? And until there's some sort of intervention, and it usually comes with some sort of life event, you don't realize that this is really a false narrative that you've, that you've developed in your life. And that's when the reinvention starts. If you can pay attention to um, the, the signs that are like, well, hold on a minute, is this really true? Can I really not rely on anyone? Or maybe I'm just not making the space to rely on anyone. That's one of the big issues with people who can't meditate or can't be quiet because that's, right. that's when all this stuff starts bubbling up. And I'll tell you, you're all, what you're saying is ringing bells for me and will ring a lot of bells for people who are listening to this because that is a, that is a very common thing. Do you think that um, without a crisis, you would not have been able, I mean, and the crisis of that magnitude, you would not have been able to reinvent yourself? You know, it's hard to say. I ended up going back um, to and getting my coaching certification after my husband died. I was always, <clears throat> I was always a seeker. I was always interested in the big questions. Who am I? Um, I just wasn't brave enough to look at it, I think. And um, what really had me look deeply within finally after my husband passed was knowing that I could not <clears throat> um, raise my daughter in a, in a healthy, emotional way if I myself didn't walk that path. I mean, I had gone to therapy way before I got married and I knew there was something wrong and I, cause I was kind of stuck and um, I ran away from two engagements, right? And I, you know, the first one, it's like, okay, well, it's him. Second one, mm, it's probably you. And so I knew that I had uh, something I, because I felt the resistance inside of me, but I didn't know what it was. I knew that I couldn't go deep emotionally. And I, I would think about it a little, and then I would just distract myself with something fun to do, right? And I would get busy at work and I wouldn't have to deal with it. And I'm in my twenties. So what did it matter anyway? Right. But then you get a little bit older and you start thinking, okay, wait, what's going on here? I am, I continue to repeat this pattern. And, um, you know, my mother was um, probably like a lot of our mothers. She was more like a child. My grandmother had my mom very young. My mom had me um, young, not that young in her mid twenties. And so my mother didn't get mothered. I jumped in to be my mother's savior very early because she had a very contentious uh, relationship with my father. And I was very aware that I did not want to do that with my daughter. And um, in fact, she, she tried when she was young, she would say to me when she was about four or five, I could see her come to me and say, mommy, I can help you. 
And um, at the time I had her seeing someone, her therapist, and, and he, he would say to me, don't let her do that, Layla. He said, she's, she's trying to step into the mother role. And it just rang all sorts of alarm bells for me. And I thought, this will not happen. I will break the cycle. This will end with me. And, uh, and I was very specific with her. I said, no, I'm your mommy. You can't take away my joy. This is what I want. This, you know, this, this is, I want to be your mom. That's my joy in life. And, um, and I allowed her to continue to be the child. So if I, if I accomplish nothing in this life, it's that I actually allowed her to be the child in our relationship. Um, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of, to be honest. That's a huge thing though. Um, and again, boy, I don't know. We had parallel lives in many ways and very different things, <laughs> but all that, that stuff right? that you're, oh God, yes. I, I had to be my mother's mother at age 10. Yes, I was the adult. And like you, I was always the one who was able, accomplished and able to handle anything and all of that because I had to. That was a matter of survival. She was, she got divorced and she just fell apart. So I totally understand all of that. So let's talk then about what happened with your parents. And, um, and then let's talk about your book and what you do now. So talk about okay. then how you're getting it together. And then you get hit again twice, right? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, so about um, 15 months after my husband passed, my, my father had a stroke. And he, um, he died shortly thereafter, a few months after that. And he was not that old. He was in his late sixties. And, and, um, and then, and then a couple of years after that, my mom had a stroke as well. So they both died in their early seventies. And, you know, again, my parents were never there for me as um, to take care of me. I kind of always took care of them, but when you lose your parents, it, it all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the grown up, right? <laughs> There's some something happens, even, even if they were parents that, that you took care of. And um, for you know, for when my husband passed, I was still very much in denial, and I had to come to terms with um, the fact that I had been pretending I was all right after he passed. For my father, I was able to be more present and more aware with him, although I did not make it to his, um, to his deathbed, I missed it by hours. And then for my mom, I just thought I am not going to miss this, I'm going to do this whole thing. And I'm not going to distract myself or pretend this is not happening. And, um, and for my mom, I, I ended up bringing the whole family back together and, and having a vigil for her. And I was the only one with her when she passed. So are you going to make me cry? I just feel like it just went full circle, right? I had this mom who was very um, un emotionally unavailable and distracted herself and numbed out to her pain, which taught me how to do it. And then it was actually having my daughter and then being there for my mom um, at the moment of her death. And so for me that I felt like, okay, I've, I've completed the circle and I'm now moving on my own path. So while it's very sad, I feel really, um, lucky that I was able to do that. Um, because you know, what a, what a, what a gift to usher the person out of this world that brought you into this world. It felt like just karmically that was, how it should have been the whole time. 
Um, so, um, and, and the irony of it. Yeah, is, go ahead. I was going to say, and yeah. do you want to bring that around to your book then? Sure, sure. So after my mom passed, <clears throat> I, um, I quit my job at the end of that. I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> and I moved to the South of France with my daughter. <clears throat> she was then uh, nine and we lived in the South of France. <clears throat> and for the first time, I just sort of took care of myself. <clears throat> Sorry. I worked out. I, you know, I did as the French did, which is I just lived a life of just sort of pleasure. I went to the ocean, I skied, I worked out, I had friends. It was the first time I allowed myself to have that kind of life. And I just think it recalibrated me. Um, and when I came back to the States, I, uh, I had started to journal in France and I was looking at my stories and I thought, you know, um, I, I realized that while the details of my story were specific to me, this journey that I was on, just like you said a little bit earlier, right? Like what I'm saying resonates with you. This is all of our journey. The journey where we develop this idea about who we are <clears throat> and what our story is and um, how life shows up for us. Eventually we realized mm, maybe not, not, not really. And how we grow is by going within and really um, self-reflecting and recognizing the story we had to tell ourselves in order to survive our childhood. And, and that is really what my, my book is about. And I call it Strong Like Water. Do you know who Lao Tzu is? He's, he, is um, he was the father of Taoism. He wrote a book um, 600 BC called the Tao Te Ching. It's actually 81 verses. And it's mm -hmm. really all about um, the paradox of life. And mm -hmm. one of them is called be like water. <clears throat> and in it, he says, um, whatever is soft and yielding is more powerful than what is hard and rigid. <clears throat> so be like water, my friend. And so I realized that I didn't have to be hard and rigid. I didn't need to be super strong and capable and get out of my way. I can do it to be strong. I could allow myself to be vulnerable and compassionate and collaborative um, and curious. And, you know, some of the more <clears throat> traditionally feminine qualities, we, but we have male, masculine and feminine inside of us, all of us, right? And I was leaning so hard into the masculine <clears throat> that I forgot I had all these beautiful feminine qualities too. And when I allowed myself to embrace the feminine qualities as well, I really thought I was going to become, I was going to lose my agency and I was going to become weak. But the irony is that uh, what was soft became strong, that I never lost my strength. I just infused my strength with a little bit of softness. Um, and so I'm actually even more effective now because people can tell I really, I really care and I'm, and I, I'm able to hold whatever comes up emotionally. Because, you know, when, when you talk to someone that really you know, can't be with messy feelings, you can feel it. So it sort of stops you from going there. It stops you from, from opening up and being vulnerable. And now that I have developed my capacity to do that, my, my conversations and my connections are so much richer and so much meaningful. It must be as confusing to you as it is to me then 
this whole obsession for the last few years of being strong and not showing weakness and this whole weird, super macho, super male thing. And I would hear women start saying things like that though. You know, if I, I was afraid if I spoke up at this meeting and didn't have the answer, I would look weak. And I'd be like, what if we like, first of all, the hardest thing you can do is face your issues. Running away yes. from your issues is the easy thing. And pretending is easy. The hard part is to look them in the face and deal with them and your vulnerabilities. Right. It's not It's not the other way around. It looks like the other thing. I know. Thing. That's the irony. The right? courage is to allow the yourself courage. to go. Well, you know, it's interesting because we live in a patriarchy now. I think it's shaking right now, right? Which is why everything is coming up. But if the if the model for power is the masculine, which is it's it's strong, it's directive, it's command and control. And if you work in that, which you know I did, I started working in the late 80s, 90s. That's when I came into the workforce. I just kind of looked around. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what power is. I'm going to be strong, quote, strong, right? I remember talking to a woman who said to me, um, oh, I had to break myself from saying I feel this or that. I now say I think because she felt that I feel uh, made her sound, you know, weak uh, in some way. And look how far we've come. We all did that. All of that, all of those terminologies, we had to purge ourselves of female terminology, right? We had to talk like a man. We had to look like a man. We had to walk like a man, right? It was a whole generational thing, unfortunately. That's right. That's right. That was, that was the energy. And even just, I don't want to get political, but even just in 2016, you know, poor Hillary Clinton, man, whatever you think about her, if she was if she was tough and she didn't cry, oh, look at her. She's so, you know, she, she's unfeeling. And then the minute she cried, oh, brother, she's crying. You can't win for losing. We're in, the, we're in this double bind, right? Um, now, I think that's shifting now. I really, really do. It's going to take a while, but it is absolutely shifting. And it's not like men were on top and now women are going to be on top. It's all of us, men and women. We can be both. We are both. We just have to allow ourselves to go there. The best leaders, men or women, are the ones who have the courage to be vulnerable and to be honest and to look at themselves and look at others. Now, you know, the new terminology that's coming in that I've heard just recently is toxic positivity. Susan David, who's a professor at Harvard. Not heard that I love this. Yes. So this is when you are so obsessed with reframing everything to the positive because you're just not looking at it the right way. Look at it this way, this way. Be happy, 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 which was totally my mantra, right? Um, She says, she said something like, um, toxic positivity, if when you're be, when you're obsessively being that way, you're basically saying my comfort is more important than your problems. Like, don't make me uncomfortable to go into this icky place. And wow, I thought that is completely true. And so now that we're even having this conversation about toxic positivity, because it is cultural, right? I mean, like our, the American culture is, yes, we can, you can do it, buck up, don't, you know, don't show that you're weak. And look, you know, look, it served us well, 100 years of, you know, the industrial revolution, post-industrial revolution, and, and, and we're a very developed country, and yet we're emotionally very brittle, right? 
we're numbed out. We're, yes. we're now well, this generation yeah. is the millennials and the gen, you know, they're, they're anxious, yeah. they're depressed. It's because yeah. we haven't allowed ourselves to feel my employees where I am now. We have a very young company. The average age is 29, 30 years old. They are so smart. It's unbelievable. They are so intellectually capable compared mm-hmm. to where I was. And probably we were at that age, mm-hmm. but emotionally they're so fragile and brittle. They don't have any resilience, right? Mm. Um, imposter syndrome abounds. Wow. It, it's, it's, it is when I think of who they are and what they have compared to where I was, and right. yet they have, they don't have a lot of confidence and all. And I think this comes with growing up in social media, they, um, how they feel about themselves is based on what others say. God. Like what's oh, your highlight reel on, on oh. Instagram? I mean, thank God that didn't oh. exist when we were young, (laughs) like if there was video of what I did in college, I wouldn't be good. (laughs) Shoot me now. (laughs) Right. So, so Layla, let's talk because we're coming to the end of our half hour. Let's talk a little bit about how to's um, and what people might learn that they could apply in their own lives. If you had to tell somebody like me, you know, Mm -hmm. how to, how to do what you did or how to avoid doing what you did, what would be your top three pieces of advice that I could actually implement? Because you were already doing therapy. It's not like you were a completely blocked person. It's not like this sent you into therapy. I was just do. an incredibly tough case. Uh, okay. Even, um, I would say, I would say pay. The first thing is pay attention to what's not working in your life. Like where you feel stuck, where you're not getting results. And if you are getting results, what, where might there be some dissonance inside of you? Like, do you recognize that you might be resisting something? If you're just quiet for a minute, you can usually tell that there is something off, even if you can't name it, right? A hmm. feeling, a thought, an idea, something is not right. And if just pay attention to that and, you know, read a, read a book. There's so many amazing books out there, right? Um, talk to a friend, talk to a therapist, go to yoga, any of the um, contemplative, anything that's going to allow you to stop being so busy, as you said earlier mm-hmm. in your mind, meditate, whatever that looks like for you, go into nature, tap into what wants to come out. You're, it want the truth wants to come out. Mm-hmm. We just keep pushing it away, whatever our defense mechanisms are. So pay attention to what wants to come out. I'd say that's the first thing. The second thing, and I wish someone would have told me this a long time ago, is just allow yourself to stay with the discomfort. Like I never understood what the point was of being sad or allowing myself to be in this place of like, confusion or not knowing because I I had to be certain I had to know I had to have a direction because it was my that was my safety that was my safety blanket right to to allow myself to start feeling some of the discomfort meant that oh man I'm gonna have to go into this and that scared me I didn't know how to do that I didn't want to be that vulnerable and if someone would have just said just stay with it stay with the discomfort you don't even have to do anything with it you don't have to move into action. You don't have to name it. You don't have, you don't have to do anything. Just stay with it and allow what wants to come up to come up. If you cry, if you get sad, if you giggle, it doesn't matter. The actual staying with it 
is what reconnects you to it. And you don't have to do anything with it. Just stay with the discomfort, continue to lean into the resistance. Um, and then I'd say the third thing, and this is also one I think that, I don't know if I do this, but be kind to yourself throughout this process. I can't tell you whatever age I was, I kept on saying to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe you haven't figured this out, Layla, right? If I was 30, oh my gosh, you haven't figured this out. If I was 40, oh, I can't believe this is happening. I just was so hard on myself. Mm, and that stops are. you, yeah. right? That stops you from doing the work, as I call it, from going within. Because if you're, if you're reprimanding yourself, then you kind of want to forget that there's any work to do. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Put it away, right? Mm-hmm. Just be kind to yourself, self, self-love, self-compassion. We're all just, you know, was it Ram Das? He says, in the end, we're all just walking each other home. Mm. We're all just on this journey together. We're just walking each other home. Mm. There's no, there's no race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no, that's the, that's the big, that's the big story that we've all made up. I'm better than you. My success is greater than yours. I've got mm-hmm. a bigger house than yours. Mm-hmm. It's, right. It, it's all, it's just all made up. Mm-hmm. It's just all made up. Awesome. So what a good way to end. The last thing is where can people find you? They can find your book, Strong Like Water on Amazon, I assume. Yep. You can find Strong Like Water on Amazon. The audiobook is actually out already on oh, Audible. Fabulous. Are yes, you the audio? The, I am. I am oh, the great. narrator. And fabulous. It was, yeah, it was great. And uh, and the pub, pub date is uh, April 13th for the paperback. Okay. And uh, I've got an Instagram account, uh, Layla Taraf, and I've got a website. I, I don't know how many Layla Taraf's there are out there. So if you spell my name right, you can find me. Right. And T-A-R-R-A-F. So That's Layla, right. thank you so much. And I'm sorry you had to go through all of this to get to where you are now, but this will help a lot of people who are in the process of trying to find that. They're either in the beginning or maybe they will be alert to the fact that, Ooh, that sounds a lot like me. Maybe something bad hasn't happened to them, but they're heading in that direction and they need to prepare themselves how to be resilient. So thank you so much. That's my hope. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good. And, and thanks so much. And um, everybody, you can pick up her book, Strong Like Water. So I hope all of you enjoyed this conversation with Layla. And boy, I recognized as you hear myself in there so many times. I had a parent. I had a parent when I was 10. And um, that bends you in a certain way. And you have to learn to undo some of that as you get to be an adult. Um, Makes you very capable, makes you very competent, but sometimes in life, you need to be more than capable and competent. Yes, it comes in handy, but there are other things to life than that, as we all know. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you will listen to other of our podcasts in Reinvent Yourself. And I hope that if you like this enough, you will leave us a comment. We would love to hear from you. We'll answer back. And also give us a rating if that's what's on your podcast that you're listening to from the service that you're using allows for a rating that helps other people find the podcast and 
learn how to reinvent themselves as well. And if you're really into reinventing yourself and your world, come over and join us at CoveyClub.com, which is our website, where we are reinventing every single day. And it doesn't have to be, as you see from Layla, it doesn't have to be just your career. It can be your body, your mind, your soul. All those things can be reinvented. And sometimes it's a small thing. You may want to just reinvent your freaking eyebrows. That's fine with us too. But there's a moment in life where you do find that you may need a change. And sometime after 40, you're going to want change. And the question is, how do you respond to that need? So thank you for joining us and we will see you next time.